So my very first job was delivering papers. Uh, when I was about 14 years old, I got a job, and the first paper I delivered was the penny saver. You guys remember the penny saver? I was the guy who delivered the penny saver. And the thing with the penny saver is every house gets the penny saver. Whether they want it or not, they were getting the penny saver. And about a year later, I graduated to the big leagues, and I started delivering the Herald Journal. The Herald Journal was the afternoon paper. There was the Post Standard in the morning, and there was the Herald Journal in the afternoon. And I delivered uh, the paper to my street and a couple other streets where I, we lived in Bayberry. And uh, my most, uh, the most uh, distinct memory I have of delivering the paper is the blizzard of 93. So now I sound like a real old person, like the blizzard of 93. The blizzard of 93. If you lived in Syracuse, you remember it. It made what we've been going through recently look like child's play. And remember, it was Sunday, March 14th. The blizzard really hit on Saturday the 13th, but it was the 14th where we all kind of were trying to recover, and I had to deliver the paper that day. Now, they didn't expect us to deliver it in the morning, but we did have to deliver it later in the day. And I remember having to crawl on my hands and knees to deliver paper to people's doors because nobody had plowed, nobody had shoveled, nobody could get out. You couldn't even walk through it, and uh, it was quite an experience. Most of my street actually got the Herald Journal. And a lot of them got the Post Standard too, two papers a day. Now think about how much times have changed. Not as many people get the newspaper delivered to their home anymore. Now it seems like everyone gets their news online, right? And there are some good things about that. By getting our news online, news breaks faster, doesn't it? We, we just know quicker. We don't have to wait for the paper to come tomorrow. News is easier to access. I mean, you could check your news right now during the service if you wanted to. We're more globally aware. We know what's happening around the world more easily, more quickly, and we can respond to situations and do good as a community faster, can't we? Last week, uh, something really significant happened for central New York, but more specifically, western New York, and the Buffalo Bills qualified for the playoffs for the first time in 17 years. It was a big deal. And I was actually watching that game, and the Bills won, but they still needed another game to go the right way for them. They needed the Bengals to defeat the Ravens. And I watched the end of that game, and it was 4th and 12, and the Bengals needed to convert to keep the game alive. And not only did they convert and get a first down, they scored a touchdown on that play, which essentially sent the Bills into the playoffs for the first time in 17 years. That's a really big deal for Western New York. And the quarterback for the Bengals, his name is Andy Dalton. And Andy Dalton has a foundation for kids and children that have physical handicaps and, and, and different disabilities and things that they struggle with. Well, Bills fans were so grateful for what Andy Dalton did to get their team into the playoffs, they began to give to his foundation. In fact, in the first day, over $57,000 by Bills fans were given. And the funny thing is, is most of the gifts were $17 donations to symbolize the 17 years they'd missed the playoffs. Within a couple of days, they had passed the $100,000 mark uh, generosity from Buffalo towards Andy Dalton's foundation. Now, that's an example of, that's a good reason, or that's a good result of getting our news online. Things spread faster. But you know there's some negatives too, right, to getting our news online. One negative is this. Everyone is convinced they're an expert now on every issue, and on every situation, because they can read about it all day long. And they can listen to people yell on, on the TV about it all day long. Another negative of getting our news so fast is the risk of overreaction. Because sometimes news is released before we have really all the facts and all the details. But because of the speed of reporting, it just, it's who can get the news out fastest, even if it's not really 100% accurate yet. 
Um, but I think probably one of the more annoying things about how we get our news online now is this, is this thing called clickbait. Have you heard that term, clickbait? Clickbait is this. It's when someone puts a headline on, on, on an internet website designed to make you want to click on the link, and it leads to a story that doesn't actually deliver on the promise of the headline. So it's like a sensational headline. It's a controversial-sounding headline. It's, a, it's maybe a very promising-sounding headline, and you look at it, and you can't help but click on it because it's like, ooh, I wonder what this is. And then you go to the article, and there's really nothing much to it. I, I have an example for you here. This is clickbait. This is a uh, guy who says uh, an 87-year-old trainer has discovered the key to losing weight. I think I have this for you. An 87-year-old trainer has discovered the key to losing weight. There it is. Now, I don't know about you, but when I saw that link, you know what I thought? Eggs. <laughs> eggs is the secret to losing weight. And I'm thinking, if eggs is the secret to losing weight, I'm about to lose a lot of weight. Like, because I love eggs. I like them cooked like that. I like, I like the yolk runny. I like the, I, I'll put egg on just about anything. Egg on anything is like the grace of God on our lives. I just want, I want more egg. I want more yolk on things. And so I, this is called clickbait because I clicked on it thinking, oh my goodness, an 87-year-old trainer, he's got to know something. Uh, he's discovered that the secret to losing weight is to eat eggs all day long. So I click on it, and guess what the secret to losing weight is? Eating healthy and exercising. I was like, I've known that my whole life. Not interested. This is clickbait. Now, we're going to spend 13 weeks in the Gospel of Mark, and the first verse of the first chapter of Mark says this. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and really what he's saying here is the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, this opening verse must have seemed like clickbait to the original readers, Because when they saw this promise of the Son of God and the Messiah, I'm sure they thought, oh, if we keep reading, we're going to read about a mighty warrior, a triumphant ruler, a powerful politician. But the truth is, is that the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, he was none of those things. So it must have felt like clickbait to them. Now, Mark was the first gospel of the four written. In fact, Mark was written only 20 to 30 years after Jesus walked the earth. And Matthew and Luke, when they wrote their gospel accounts, they almost certainly already had Mark's. They had access to Mark's. And that's why we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels, because they have a lot in common. They tell a lot of the same stories, but from slightly different perspectives. And they all wrote to different audiences, which influenced the way that they wrote. And Mark is the briefest and most action-packed of all the gospels. So if you prefer 90-minute action movies to a three-hour drama, Mark's your gospel. Mark is written for those that have a short attention span. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, the word immediately is used no less than 40 times to indicate constant movement, constant motion, Jesus moving towards the cross. And what Mark does in his Gospel is he's making a case for who Jesus is and what he's done, and he's making the case that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah that everybody's waiting for. But what's interesting is that it's only in this first verse that Mark actually shows his hand. Only in verse 1 of Mark chapter 1 does Mark actually give his opinion. Now, in the middle of the book, we're going to see Peter gives his opinion. And at the very end of the book, we're going to see an unnamed Roman centurion gives his opinion. But really, for the rest of the book of Mark, it's basically like Mark says, here's the facts, now you decide. Here's the facts, now you decide. 
Was Jesus Christ the Son of God? Was he the Messiah? And that decision that was made by the early readers of Mark is still needs to be made by each of us today. Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first 15 verses of Mark chapter 1, and we're going to find five things that are true about the gospel and two things that are true about people who believe the gospel, okay? Five things that are true about the gospel, two things that are true about people who believe the gospel. I know those of you that are doing the math, that's seven points, and you're thinking, you normally do three. How long is this message going to be? We're going to miss the kickoff of the Bills-Jags game. Don't worry. We're going to move. We're going to move. All right, so let's read together. We're going to read the first eight verses of Mark chapter 1. I'm reading to you from the ESV. It says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist. And proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He's a little bit of an odd dude. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so... Five things that are true about the gospel. And the first thing is this. The gospel is an announcement. You got it in your notes. You can write it down if you're a note taker. The gospel is an announcement. Now, we like some announcements, right? Kids, school age kids, you love that announcement, right? No school today, snow day. Some of you had a snow day this week or a cold. We love that sort of announcement. We love announcements about uh, babies being born. There's some announcements that are great. There's other announcements that aren't so exciting, like the announcements that we've been getting on the Weather Channel around here for the last two weeks of what it's going to be like today. So we like some announcements. We don't like some announcements. But the gospel is an announcement of something that has happened, and this is a good thing. This is a good announcement. Now, the Greek word for gospel is the word evangelion, evangelion. And from the word evangelion, we get the words that we use in our church circles, evangelist and evangelism. But in the original context, Evangelion had a much broader use. Evangelion was when somebody had good news, great news of a historical event that was then proclaimed in an announcement form that had direct impact on the lives of the listeners and demanded a response from them. So here's an example. Back in these times, kings would leave their cities to go fight other enemies in other places. And because they didn't have the internet and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, nobody knew what was happening miles and miles away at the battle. And so everybody's back home, I'm sure, anxious and worried and wondering, are we winning? How's it going? Just hoping to hear news. And so when the king would win the battle, he would turn around and head back to the city. But somebody would run ahead of the king. And this person was called the evangelist. And the evangelists would run back to the city, and as soon as they got near the city, they would begin to yell out, the king has won, we're victorious, he's returning, we've defeated our enemies. And you know what it did for the listeners? It, it, it had a direct impact on their lives. They stopped worrying, and they started celebrating. And it demanded a response of praise and celebration and gratitude. So this word evangelion, really in that context, is it's good news that changes your life. 
And so Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus. He's saying, this is good news that's going to change your life. And it's going to require a response. The gospel, since it's an announcement, this is what it means for us. It's news. It's not instruction. Do you hear that? The gospel is news of what's happened. It's not instruction. And that alone distinguishes the message of Christianity from every other religion. Specifically, the gospel is the good news that God has done, or it's the good news of what God has done to accomplish salvation through Jesus Christ in history. It's, it's, it's the good news about God reaching us. It's not advice on how you need to reach God. That's a big difference. Every other religion says, here's the things you do to reach God or to reach nirvana or to reach whatever, or to make yourself good enough or to get yourself into the kingdom. And the story of the gospel is, no, you never could. Here's the story of how God came to you. Here's how God came incarnate as a human being to rescue and save you. That's good news because the problem with good advice, even the best advice, is that it still ultimately rests on your performance. It still ultimately rests on your shoulders. You have to hear the good advice. You have to agree with it. You have to internalize it. You have to follow it. You have to keep it. You have to sustain it. You have to perfect it. And how good are we at that? In other words, if the gospel is good advice, then you still have to save yourself by learning and using and keeping and perfecting the advice that's been given to you. But if the gospel is good news and it's an evangelist running you to say, the king has already won, now what do we do? We respond with celebration and with a changed heart. So the gospel is an announcement to hear, believe, and receive. The king has won. And what this means for us this morning is this. We do not achieve this salvation. We receive it. We don't accomplish it. We open up our hands as grateful recipients of a victory that we didn't raise a finger to win. And we say, thank you, God, for winning for us what we could never have won for ourselves. So the gospel is an announcement. Secondly, the gospel is about a person. Don't miss this. The gospel, it says in verse 1, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel is about a person. This announcement is not about a creed. It's not about a belief system. It's not about a set of rules. It's not about a mystical experience. It's not about an emotional moment. This is the announcement about a person, the good news of Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do. We may forget sometimes that Jesus was a real person. I mean, he, he had real experiences. He got tired. He got frustrated. He wept. He was a person that other people knew that they grew up with. People worked with Jesus. They, they, they trained, they apprenticed with Jesus as a carpenter or a stone worker. They walked with him, they talked with him, they ate with him, they laughed with him, they cried with him, they argued with him, they debated with him. This is a real person. This is the person that many people saw physically die on a cross. And this is a real person that well over 500 people saw after the tomb that he was alive and well. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for us if the gospel is about a person and if it's about Jesus? What it means is this. The ultimate decision that everyone has to make in their life is, what will I do with Jesus? Is he who he said he is? It's not things like this. These are the sort of decisions that people think it's Christianity is about. It's not things like, do I like church? Do I like the church? Do I trust religion? Do I like how they worship? Do I agree with Christianity's view on human flourishing or human sexuality? Do I want to give my money away? Do I share their moral beliefs? Do I share their political beliefs? Do I agree with them about the beginning of the world? Do I agree with them about the end of the world? Now, those things are not entirely unimportant, 
But that's not where everything hinges. Where everything hinges, because the gospel is about a person and not about a creed, where everything hinges is a simple question of, what will I do with Jesus? What will I do with his radical claims? The claims that Jesus made are far too radical and have far too reaching, uh, the implications are way too far reaching for us just to dismiss. In fact, anyone who just doesn't have an opinion about Jesus, it's a little hard to respect their sort of intellectual integrity. Because how can you not have an opinion about a person who's both one of the most influential people in history, but also claim to be God? No one else is at the top of both of those lists. Because anyone who claims to be God is easily dismissible, laughable, and proven to be a fraud very quickly. But Jesus claimed to be a God, and 2,000 years later, the vast majority of the world, not our country, but in other parts of the world, have built their lives in faith around this man who really, 33 years, walked the earth, never owned property, never got rich, never wrote a single thing down, and the world was changed upside down by him. And you're going to say, I don't need an opinion on him? It's not, very, it's, it's not, a, it's not a wise approach to life. And so this is gospel is about a person. Number three, the gospel is historical. It's historical. It's rooted in history. Did you notice that John the Baptist goes out into the wilderness and he calls people to be baptized in the River Jordan so that they can repent and experience life? Does that remind you of anything? We just last year finished a series from the book of Exodus. And John the Baptist's ministry is a direct allusion to the Exodus. Just like the people of Israel had to come out of Egypt, had to come through the wilderness, and had to go through the Red Sea so that they could experience life, that's what is happening here. That he, John the Baptist is calling people out into the wilderness, out of the wilderness, into the water so that they can be saved through water. Of course, we're not saved through water baptism, but it's symbolic of an inner work in our hearts. And so what we see right here at the beginning of Mark's gospel is Mark's not starting a brand new story. He's continuing a story that flows all through the Old Testament because the gospel is historical. All of the Old Testament exists and was written and has been provided to us to point us to Jesus. Not so that we would marvel at the heroes in the Old Testament, although they're wonderful to learn from. Not that we would adore them or worship them or put our hopes in them or put our hope in our ability to live like them. It was all given so that we might see our need for Jesus and see who Jesus is. So when we look in the Old Testament, we see these heroes. We always have to remember Jesus is the only real hero in the, in the Bible. He's the only real hero. These are great people, but they didn't save us. They're just like us. What could they do for us? Jesus is the only true hero. We see these great rescuers and deliverers, and they all point us to our need for a true and better rescuer to really deliver us, not just from our physical location, but from our spiritual lostness. We see the prophets in the Old Testament, but Jesus is the greater prophet who came not just to speak the word, but to be the word of God. We see the priest in the Old Testament, but Jesus is the greater priest who doesn't just make sacrifices for his people, but becomes the sacrifice for his people and now sits at the right-hand side of the Father and intercedes for us as a priest should. We see kings through the Old Testament, and most of them are terrible, but even the good ones only point us to our need for a greater king, a better king, a truer king, who doesn't just rule from afar and doesn't demand our allegiance, but rules up close and within us and wins our hearts in such a way that it's a joy to call him king, and it's a joy to bow our knees to him. So the stories, in the old, the stories are all steeped in history, real places, real people. The gospel is historical. What does this mean? Two things. Number one, it means that the gospel is not God's 
last-minute reaction to how history was, was unfolding. Wasn't God sitting up in heaven going, ah, this isn't going well. This isn't what I thought it would be. What should I do? What should I do? I'll send my son. I'll send my son. The gospel is not God reacting to history. Before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. God knew in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, I'm going to create a world that's perfect. I'm going to create a people to have a relationship with me. They're going to reject me, but somehow it's going to be worth it. Everything that we're going to endure, the sin of rejection, the sin and the way sin affects our lives, somehow God knows in his sovereignty and in his knowledge and in his perfection that somehow at the end of time, we're all going to look back and go, it's better for having been. And so he creates everything knowing that we're going to reject him, we're going to go our way, that he's going to have to provide his son to be a perfect uh, substitute and a perfect sacrifice. And he didn't react and respond. God doesn't react and respond. He doesn't sit up in heaven and just sit back and watch things and then make his decisions. Our God is sovereign. He knows the beginning from the end. All your days are written out before him. So uh, just as far as a doctrinal uh, stance Please be wary of teachers and preachers who make God sound like he's somehow responding. He's somehow reacting to what's happening. He's not caught by surprise. God's not caught by surprise. And so he's, because the gospel is historical, we know that the gospel is not his last-minute reaction. It's the whole story of history. But the other thing this means is because the gospel is steeped in real places with real people and in real times, the gospel is not ahistorical which means it doesn't exist outside of history, which means it's not something mystical. In other words, you don't encounter and experience the gospel by, exp- by escaping reality. There are certain pockets of Christianity where they think the more that we can escape reality, the closer we get to, to who God really is. But that's not how God works. He works in, in, in reality. He works in this er- world, in this earth. You don't encounter it by escaping reality. Here's how you enter the gospel story, by embracing the work of the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, right? Here on earth as it is in heaven. An increasing awareness of what God wants to do here, not just what he's sort of doing up there. What does he want to do here in real people and real places? Fourthly, the gospel is spiritual. Or this word works too, the gospel is supernatural. Whichever one you prefer. The gospel is spiritual or the gospel is supernatural. John said, there's one coming after me. He's better. He's better. I'm the appetizer. He's the entree. Or for those of you that have a sweet tooth, he's the dessert, right? He, he's better. And then in verse 8, he says, I baptize you in water. Now, water is natural, right? Now, it's Baptism in water, of course, is symbolic of something supernatural, but water itself is natural. I baptize in water, but then he says, the one who comes after me baptizes you, what? In the Holy Spirit. That's spiritual. That's supernatural. That's not a natural thing. The gospel is supernatural. See, what this means is that the work of making dead hearts alive, it's a miracle. It really is. And help us, God, from forgetting the miracle it took for him to rescue me. Help me, me, God, never to lose my wonder that you breathed your life into my dead heart and brought me to life. That's the greatest miracle any of us will ever see or ever experience, dead hearts coming to life. And what this means, by the way, because the gospel is spiritual or supernatural, what it means is you can't educate your way into this. You can't learn your way in. You can't gather enough information and say, I'm saved. I figured it out. You can't work your way in. You can't roll up your sleeves and and sort of burrow your way into the gospel. You can't do it because there's no, hear this, there's no natural way in. 
doesn't exist. The gospel is supernatural. It's spiritual. This isn't about you making some sort of cognitive decision to save yourself. This has to be something that comes from above. The gospel at work in your life is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And let me list for you some things that the Holy Spirit does in the context of the gospel for every single one of us. He seeks us out in our darkness. He draws us into the light. He reveals to us our own lostness. We don't, we're not convinced of our own lostness apart from the Holy Spirit. We might not be happy with who we are. We might realize we have some room for improvement, some things we could get a little better at, some New Year's resolutions. That's not the same thing as realizing I'm lost and can't do anything about it. Only the Spirit can do that for us. The Holy Spirit convinces you of your need for a Savior. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to your heart, pointing you to him and what he's done. The Holy Spirit gives you the grace that you need to respond to what he's doing. The Holy Spirit regenerates you, brings your heart back to life, and the Holy Spirit seals you for the day of redemption, secures you in in, in what God is doing in your life and in your heart. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. We can't do any of that for ourselves And quite honestly, I can't do that for you. And you can't do that for each other. You can't do that for your spouse. You can't do that for your kids. That's why we need the Holy Spirit so desperately in our lives. Now, before I get to the fifth thing that is true of the gospel, I want to actually read the next two passages in Mark 1. And what Mark does now is he gives us the first two snapshots of Jesus' life, his baptism and his temptation. And in these two stories, we see a crucial tension in the walk of faith. Two truths that go hand in hand that were true for Jesus and will be true for anyone who follows Jesus. True for you and true for me. And here's the first one. The first truth is this, that Jesus was loved by the Father. And so are you. In verse 9 it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, Matthew and Luke give us a better... Remember, Mark is brief. These are brief stories. If you really want to read about the baptism and the temptation, you got to go to Matthew or Luke. But Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Jesus needs the Holy Spirit. Jesus is given the Holy Spirit here. And verse 11 says, a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Here's what the Father is saying. I love you. I delight in you. I take pleasure in you. You're enough. This is what Jesus heard, and this is what every disciple needs to hear, loved by the Father, because the need to be loved, accepted, approved, it haunts us our entire lives. It really does. Our entire lives, we're we're listening for that. We're listening in different directions. Do you love me? Do you accept me? Do you approve of me? We need to hear the Father say, you are my beloved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. Otherwise, we will spend all of our energy and leverage all of our talents and gifts and opportunities and even sort of manipulate and position our relationships so that we can get this unconditional love that, we, that we're lacking. If you don't get it from your parent, you're going to look for it in a friend or a lover. And if you don't get it there, you're going to look for it by being superior to other people in any sort of way or being successful in any sort of endeavor. But even when you seem to have reached the top of the ladder, It's never really going to satisfy. It's never going to be enough because what we need to hear is, you're my beloved son, and with you I'm well pleased. This past week I was listening to a podcast called This American Life, and they were telling the story about a French comedian. His first name is Gad. I won't try to pronounce his last name. But Gad is known as the Jerry Seinfeld of France. 
Now, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, in case you don't know, is one of the most popular comedians in America. Gad is the most popular comedian in all of France. I mean, he's, he can't go anywhere. He's famous like our athletes and movie stars are famous. And he got to a point in his life where even though he was the most famous, celebrated, successful comedian in France, it wasn't enough for him. He said, I'm going to go to America, and I'm going to learn English, and I'm going to begin to do comedy acts, stand-up comedy in English to American audiences. And it wasn't easy for him. In fact, it was very hard for him. And he started, you know, he was playing arenas in France, and now he's playing little 200-people clubs in, in New York City. It was a fascinating story. And I thought the most fascinating point was when they brought together the Jerry Seinfeld of France and the Jerry Seinfeld of America. And they sat together and they had a conversation. So this comedian named Gad and the actual guy, Jerry Seinfeld. And Gad says to him in this podcast, are you surprised that I came to America? Are you surprised I came to do this? And here's really kind of a summary of what Jerry Seinfeld says. He says, I get what you're doing. It's like, I want to go build a car, but I'm going to build it in Germany. Then I'm going to go to Italy and I'm going to open up a pasta factory. And then I'm going to go to France and I'm going to make wine. And then I'm going to go to England and I'm going to write some plays. And then I'm going to go to America and I'm going to do stand-up comedy. Because America is the home of stand-up comedy. Those people are used to the best. What are you saying is, I get it. You were the best in France, but you still knew that there was something more for you to accomplish. You still weren't hearing, you're my beloved son, and you I'm well pleased. It wasn't satisfying you. So you left France to try to come to America. It's like a soccer player going over to Spain to try and make a professional team there instead of a professional team maybe in America. You go where you, the best are. And this is just, as I was listening to this um, podcast and listening to this comedian, his heart was so obviously uh, laid bare that he was desperate to get approval. He basically said, I live for the approval of the audience. And, and when he first came over to America and started doing his stand-up acts, he'd have a piece of paper with him and he would take notes as to which jokes worked and which jokes didn't work so that he would get it right the next time. And we can applaud that sort of bravery, and it is brave. It's very brave of him to leave all his popularity. We can, but we can also see in his heart, it's, just, it's this need to experience something that is, uh, settles our hearts. It could, be, it could be a lot of different things. It could be someone's identity as being uh, the perfect mom or the husband that provides or a faithful church member, any affiliation that you have political or personal, any ability that you have, professional or, or recreational, it, when it controls you, when it drives you, when it's where you are tilting your ear to hear these words, you're my beloved. And with you, I'm well pleased. But the thing is, is I can't do that for you. Here's why. Because humankind, as part of creation, we were created to work in, work with, work through, and work for the good of creation, but we were not created to worship creation. Creation can't give you what your heart needs. Only the creator can. And right at the start of his gospel, Mark wants us to understand something crucial. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he needed to hear the Father say, you're my beloved son, and with you I'm well pleased. And listen, let's be honest. Let's be real. If Jesus needed to hear it, how much more do you need to hear it? If Jesus needed to hear the Father say, I love you and I'm proud of you and I delight in you, and the truth is, is many people in this world have never heard that from anyone in their lives. 
I've never had someone speak that sort of truth. But even those of us that have had parents or, or, or figures in our lives that have spoken that, it's still, it, doesn't, it doesn't fill you up. And then you, it's not like you get it and then you don't need it again. You need it every day. Every day you wake up, every day you go into work, every conversation you have, you're looking for it. You're needing it. You are craving it. Jesus needed it. Now, later in Mark, we're going to see that Jesus hears the voice from heaven again at the Mount of Transfiguration. Right before he's about to walk to the cross, Jesus needed to hear again, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So two times Jesus hears it, right before he's tempted in the wilderness and right before he walks to the cross. Because the father knew, even Jesus, the son of God, God incarnate, needs to know that he's loved. Now, uh, how do we hear it? How can we hear this? The gospel of Mark was written by a man named John Mark who had failed the Apostle Paul. I won't get into it, but John Mark made a mess of things. He failed the Apostle Paul and ended up splitting up a team. John Mark wasn't an eyewitness of any of the things that he wrote about. You know who he talked to? Peter. The Apostle Peter was John Mark's eyewitness person. Peter failed Jesus. And so what you have here is two failures writing the story about Jesus. What qualified them to write this account? And the answer is actually found in this story we just read. God's delight in and acceptance of Jesus in this story is much more than a heartwarming story to inspire us or to somehow make us envious of the father and the son's relationship. In fact, this story explains, this whole story explains why you can hear the exact same words because of this. To be a Christian means first and foremost to be in Christ to be in Christ. And if you are hidden in Christ, that means that if God was pleased with Jesus' life, he's pleased with you. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus and you are hidden in his righteousness, it means that anything that the Father spoke over Jesus as he walked the earth, he now speaks over you as you walk the earth. And so he looks at you, not because you got your act together, but he looks at you because you've placed your trust in Jesus and he says, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased. You're my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And we can hear it and we can know it, and we can believe it to be true. This is what I'm saying. If God was pleased with the life that Jesus led, then you can know that he's pleased with you, and it's the only way you can know. In fact, it should be the truest thing about you. Someone says, what's the truest thing about you? Well, I'm a mom. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a worker. I'm a... No. The truest thing about you is this. I'm loved by the Father. That is the truest thing about you. And let every other lie get rebuked by that truth. You are loved by the Father. And if there's any issues in your life, and we all have issues in our life where we're not growing spiritually, it's always related to the fact that we're forgetting how much God loves us. Let me give you a couple quick examples and we'll move on. Are you, are you anxious? Are you insecure? You're forgetting how much he cares for you. You're forgetting that you can cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Are you irritated and impatient with others? Well, you've forgotten that God is slow to anger. And he's abounding in love towards you. Are you unforgiving and bitter? You're forgetting that God loved you while you were still his enemy. Are you ungenerous and greedy? You're forgetting that Jesus Christ, who was rich, became poor. You're loved by the Father. So that's the first truth that every disciple needs to know about themselves. And the second truth is this. You are led by the Spirit. Look at verse 12. It says that the Spirit, after this encounter with God's love, and it's like, oh, we're feeling all kind of warm and cuddly, Next verse, the spirit immediately, there's that word, drove him out into the wilderness. It's like, what? You just told me you love me and that I'm pleasing to you. And you're driving me 
into the wilderness. And it says that he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. There is an idea that is a lie that runs rampant sometimes in the church church world. And it's this, because we are loved by God, we will always be led into the easy life. Because we are loved by God, life should be good for us. It should be, uh, we should always be healthy. We should all be wealthy. Because God loves us, we should never go through the wilderness. Well, what are you going to do with this account? Because God just declares his love for Jesus, and then immediately he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And we have this juxtaposition of, I love you, now follow me into the wilderness. I love you, I'm pleased in you, I delight in you. God disciplines those who he loves. It's the same thing with my daughters. I discipline them not because I don't love them, but because I do love them. I lead them into difficult conversations. I lead them into repentance. I ask them to do things for themselves. I don't rescue them from every difficulty. I don't tie their shoes for their whole life, right? I don't fix all their problems because I hate them, because I'm mean, because my heart is cold. No, because I love them and I want what's good for them and I know some things that are good for them. Now, how much more does the Father know what is good for us? And if we know that the Father loves us and accepts us, then we can allow ourselves to be led into anything, even the wilderness. Being led by the Spirit is not just about special moments at church. It's not just moments of high praise. It's not just using our gifts. It's not just about even being led into this church building once, twice, three times a week. It's about being led into the wilderness. It's about allowing the Spirit to lead you in your home, your workplace, your neighborhood. Lead you in how you treat each other, how you interact with others online, how you handle your finances, even how you relax and enjoy life. The Spirit wants to lead you in those moments. When you know you're loved by the Father, you will joyfully allow yourself to be led by the Spirit, even into the wilderness. Let me close with this. One final thing about the gospel. Those of you that have been taking notes, you're nervous. You're nervous. I'm not going to get back to number five. Here we go. Number five. The last thing about the gospel is this. It demands a response. The gospel is an announcement. The gospel is about a person. The gospel is historical. The gospel is spiritual and supernatural. And lastly, the gospel demands a response. In verse 14, Jesus steps into his ministry, and this is what happens. After John was arrested, Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming what? The gospel, the good news, the announcement of who God is. And this is what he said. The time is fulfilled. The time is here. The time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's calling them to repentance. Now, what is genuine repentance? Genuine repentance is turning away from looking for the Father's love in other places and in other things and looking right to the Father for it. And genuine repentance is also turning from being self-led to being spirit-led. The gospel demands a response. And the truth is, is that every single person that ever walks the face of this earth, they will respond to the gospel. They will either receive it and build their foundation of their life on it, or they will reject it, they will refuse it, and they will build their lives on something that cannot stand. And they will build their lives on something that will not sustain them through the wilderness. And so this morning, the call is for us to respond to this announcement of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who came to do something for us that we can never do for ourselves.